Welcome to The Reading Room. This is Room 21. On this programme, The Reading Room Book Group, review Pantheon by Sam Bourne. It should have been, I thought, so much better than it was because everything was there for it to be so. We talked to Booker Prize-nominated author John McGregor. Success for me is narrowing that gap between the original idea and the finished piece of work. Poet Luke Wright adds his choice to our list of 101 books to read before you die, and we have poetry from Elaine Kazimierczuk. This is Tony Hawkes, and you're listening to The Reading Room on Siren 107.3. And now it's time for The Reading Room Book Group with our resident expert, Jill Hart. Good morning, Jill. Good morning, Paul. Now then, this month we've been reading Pantheon by Sam Bourne, which is a pseudonym of the journalist and writer Jonathan Friedland, who writes a weekly column in The Guardian. And on the back of Pantheon, the blurb reads as such, Europe is ablaze, America is undecided about joining the fight against Nazism. And James Zenner, a brilliant, troubled young Oxford Don, is horrified. He returns home one morning from rowing to discover that his wife has disappeared with their young son, leaving only a note declaring her continuing love. A frantic search through wartime England leads James across the Atlantic and onto America's great universities. It's elite clubs and secret societies right to the heart of the American establishment. In his hunt for his family, James unearths one of the darkest and deadliest secrets of a world at war. Jill, straight over to you. Let's have your overview. What did you think here? I was really looking forward to reading this one. Um, one of the things they advertise on the back is a reference to Robert Harris's Fatherland, that type of thriller, which I've always enjoyed a lot. And... It was a very good plot. There was a lot going for it. And I did enjoy it, but it didn't quite measure up, I don't think, to what I was expecting, I have to say. Okay. Uh, Now, to give our listeners a little bit more uh, insight into this, let's have an excerpt, Johnny. James slid the key into the lock noiselessly. He always tried to be quiet on these early mornings so as not to wake the baby. But there was a smell of human warmth in the hallway suggesting Florence and Harry were already up. He called out, Good morning. There was a silence. He wandered into the kitchen, noting that two of the three drawers were still open. Had they had to rush out for something? Had his son been ill while Daddy was on the river? He called out again. Harry, Daddy's home. Once in the bedroom, his concern rose. Clothes were strewn over the floor, a chair from the cupboard dragged in front of his cupboard, whose door was flung wide open. His scrapbook was on the bed, several pictures shaken loose. Now James ran into his study, only to have his worst fears confirmed. The drawers were pulled from the desk, the floor covered with their contents. There had been a robbery, just now, while he was out. And yet, most of the valuable objects in the house, a pair of solid silver candlesticks worth several years of his fellow's salary, a wedding gift from her parents, were still sitting untouched on the mantelpiece. If they had been robbed, and if Florence had rushed from here to the police station to report it, a screaming Harry in tow, then the culprits must be the stupidest men in Oxford. As he went back to the bedroom, a new thought began to form. He opened his wife's cupboard and, while he could not have said exactly which items were missing, he could see that the shelves were unusually bare. A look under the bed confirmed that the suitcase was gone. And there, that's uh, an excerpt from the beginning of chapter three, and that sort of sets up the scene. But that's chapter three, and it, for me, it, it started all a bit too late. It, it reminded me a little bit of watching Die Hard. If you have some people watch Die Hard every Christmas, they sometimes they seem to think it's a Christmas film. And uh, if you if you go back and watch Die Hard now, uh, the beginning of it, they would never make a film like that these days, just because it's not got that grabbing attention. And, and sort of two chapters in, I was beginning to wane already, really, just because it wasn't gripping and it wasn't explosive at the beginning. Uh, and, and that's kind of where I wanted it to be, and where I wanted. An, an action-packed wartime story to be. It should be a very fast-paced thriller and a quick read 
easy page turner is is what it's set up to be from the from the book but i agree it did start quite slowly yeah it, it did and so we had a production meeting last week and i told you jill that i had read half of this book <laughs> and you you gave that look over your glasses that yes, you get that look you're giving to me now we'll, we'll, we'll film that yep. one week <laughs> and uh, how much further do you think i got i suspect you haven't gone much further i got i've got three quarters of the way I'm into it before time ran out before time <laughs> ran out and and uh, i will i will go ahead and finish it yeah um because it's there's something missing, isn't there? There's something missing from this. What is it? I'm not sure. I think, I don't know if it's the fact that the, the author is a journalist and that how he is writing is in a journalistic style, but that there is a certain depth of meatiness to the story that just isn't there that I was expecting. And that if you look at the plot, you've got some great plot lines. You've got the family plot line, missing wife, missing child. You've got the spy story, which is 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 interesting in itself. And I'm sure we'll speak about that. Yeah. And it's all there to be a really in-depth thriller, but there was a level of depth that just wasn't there. It should have been, I thought, so much better than it was because everything was there for it to be so. It's a brilliant idea and a brilliant concept. Mm. And like you, I was really, really enjoying yeah. uh, or, or enjoying the prospect of getting into it. Uh, and like you say, let's, let's bring out about that, that spy story and that. Because yes. that, again, for me, bringing the, the, the character in um, of uh, Taylor Hastings, um, who's a very intriguing character. And they're always, you know, the, the ones you want to read about, you know, sort of the... Yes, uh, it was, it's a a good a good spy thread to the plot that the Americans, certain American elements were trying to promote invasion within Britain in order to carry out a eugenics experiment on what was left when we'd been decimated. And it was an interesting story in the way that they, the, the spy threads held together. It was very interesting, but again, maybe not quite, the, the depth didn't quite reach there. They, one of the main characters um, on the other side, Florence, uh, the wife of the narrator, uh, disappears with the small child at the beginning. And this is what the, the, the device they're using to drive the plot through and I was quite prepared for her to be a a Nazi spy or something like that something quite meaty in the plot and it just never happened yeah, exactly. It was all, you're always left wanting mm. more here, and I, I think you know that it's perhaps promoted, like you say, as a as a, as a, as a page turner, and perhaps something you would pick up uh, maybe at an airport or a yes. train station, yes. I think. But uh, and the chapters were short, which you know, do you know what? I usually like a short chapter, you as do. you know, I like things to be you wrapped do. up in 300 pages. <laughs> you know this, but this one actually, I was disappointed when the chapters were ending. They were just getting going with it, and boom, you're off. You know, you're you're, you're transported to the other side of the Atlantic. I did feel that there was flaws in the way that the characters were portrayed and flaws in the plot that were quite clumsy. And I think that the plot in particular ran very much on coincidence, the use of coincidence where it really wasn't believable. I mean, OK, you can have a little bit. We mm-hmm. accept it's a story. Of course, yeah. But there was one incidence where he goes to the Bodleian Library in order to research something and somebody's happened to have left little paper markers in the books at the right points mm. and he happens to need to get somewhere and the only person that can do it, he happens to know something about him that he can blackmail him with. There's lots of happens and I, th- I felt the story was so much stronger than, than the plot that it produced in the end. Yeah, so I, th- I think we know, where, where, we know mm. which area we're both going down yeah. with this. Um, and there's obvious talent there. There are some great one-liners in there. I mean, there's a suspicion of the yes. harbour master when James is trying to uh, trace his wife and uh, and go across where he <laughs> he talks about him being in the department of experimental psychology and, and the guy says psychology that's a bit german isn't it and it just <laughs> there are some su- superb things like when the the boats go into america uh, one gift of a, a quaker childhood is a high boredom threshold and the fact that you know they say is also that pizza uh, would never take off in britain and things like this you know there there is some there really is. really good there stuff is. in there and some clever stuff but actually those things stood out because the rest of it was just so i don't know it was a, i don't want to use the word drab but that's where I'm heading 
I felt that the the main character didn't develop as he should have done. That they're portraying him as a psychologist and an academic who's suffering from shell shock, which is interesting in itself. I, I don't think it's given too much away because it comes right at the beginning of the book that mm-hmm. the wife has removed the child because of his domestic violence, which is a result of the shell shock, but nevertheless is domestic violence. Yeah, and, that, that harks back to the Spanish yes, Civil War, doesn't yes, it? Yes, yeah. and because of fear of invasion quite good reasons to remove a child from a situation I would have thought Um, but although he's meant to be a psychologist his attitude right through the plot is of a bull in a china shop attitude to everything he never examines his own psychological state that of anybody else he jumps to not the most logical conclusion in each instance but the most the first conclusion and the, the most unlikely conclusions which takes the plot off where the where the narrator where the author needs it to go but it just doesn't make cohesive sense I didn't think as far as, as the development of the character was concerned and it doesn't make you warm to the character you need to warm to the hero to surely and uh, yeah I, and there's I, all that running and then <laughs> running and running this could be uh, retitled yeah. The Running Man if yeah, it wasn't already a, a film um, if he needs to get from A to B, they are trying to build. Ten- he's trying to build tension within the book, and instead of it being done by narrative and plot and good character building and all this, everywhere the guy goes, he runs everywhere. He doesn't take a cab. Or he doesn't take a train. He runs, and you just think, oh, for heaven's sake! <laughs> yeah. You know, know you're worn out just reading it. All that you? running. Yeah. It's so frustrating because there are some great things in there here, is. like the uh, the description of the university in America and the contrast then between uh, um, you know uh, just normal civilized America and wartime Europe. I, f- I found really well written. And what I found that I did like. A lot was the immediacy of a personal family life in wartime and the uncertainties of the fear of invasion and how real that comes over. I thought some of that was very well done. And as you say, the, the this group of people that were taken to America in order to protect a certain a certain number of children and people, and also the the eugenics side. I mean, obviously the Hitler's was obviously looking at eugenics to control um, the type of population he was aiming for his new world. But it was at the time, I think, an interest quite widespread across the West. Yeah. And that, that side of it, I found, I did find very interesting. Uh, we'll go straight into our email correspondent, Cathy. Uh, thanks very much for this, Cathy. She says, I found Pantheon an intriguing book of fiction with a thread of truth unravelling throughout. I felt the plot, which was set in 1940 with flashbacks to the Spanish Civil War, at times undeveloped and disappointing. This left me feeling little connection with the two main characters, Florence and James. And what I did find both intriguing and horrific was the references to eugenics and how it played a part in the world of the British and American elite in line with Nazi Germany during the war and after. Though I was disappointed in parts of the book, Sam Brown is a prolific writer and the book was an interesting read, uh, which I think sums it up uh, very, very well, as always. Thanks very much for that, Cathy. Uh, and the, the, the word I've highlighted on my uh, on my email here is the word prolific and uh, getting through, you know, he must be under certain deadlines for this, you know. So, yes, so a, do you think that... a working journalist, isn't he? A working journalist. Do you think that is an excuse to skim this so thinly? I think... It- it, it's not a bad. It's not a bad read. It almost sounds as if I think it's dreadful. I don't think it's dreadful. I think if you were taking a plane and you needed something to while away the hours gently, it would do the job nicely. Mm. But, but do you think the but, subject deserves more? But, but the subject, I think, does deserve more. Um, the strand at the beginning it flashes back to 1936 and the Barcelona Olympics that was the alternative Olympics before the Spanish Civil War which I really didn't know anything about and it was very very interesting and I presumably because we're in an Olympic year now that might have been why he chose to release this book or bring this story forward now but maybe he is 
producing quite quickly. I don't know that, but that's true. Um, but I mean, well, everyone's mm. getting on the Olympics uh, bandwagon yeah. of sales. I mean, yeah. we're you know perhaps in the production meeting next we have we should find out how we can uh, put an Olympic <laughs> ring around the, around the reading rooms podcast or something. Um, but yeah, as far as the eugenics go and and, and mm. the, the, our, our review, you know, I think we're skimming lightly over the the we eugenics. Theme of it, but I think that's probably. It's always difficult about to know how much you can talk about the plot within a, a review, how much you can talk about what happens as the plot develops, and I think in this one it's quite difficult to to not talk about it. Like if you go to the pictures and you see a, a trailer for a film, you've actually seen the beginning, the middle, and the end almost in total before you even start. Don't oh yeah, you? I mean that's de- I mean that, well, that's definitely the case for most uh, romantic yeah, comedies, yeah. isn't it? You know, yeah. you don't need to actually go and we see it. We do try and avoid the spoilers, but um, I, th- I think in. In, in this case, it's it's quite difficult to talk about it without talking about the plot and the, the eugenic thread that runs through it. That's true, but I mean, this will sell by the bucket load, won't it? Mm, I think so. I think it's say it's it does the job. It's. It's a good thing to take on holiday with you. Yeah, yeah, I think perhaps, it's yeah. holiday reading. Yeah, yeah, and you said to me before, it's perhaps just under the shelf, just below Dan Brown, which you know re- receives a lot of uh, snobbery and hurt. criticism. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I've just missed above, it. perhaps. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. About with... the alphabet, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. They, uh, <laughs> alphabetized. That's an idea for uh, retail uh, in, in 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 shops, isn't it? Oh, <laughs> or maybe maybe libraries. Um, but yeah, I, I just I think it will move. And you know, Channel Five appeals to a lot of people. It doesn't appeal to me, but it appeals. This to may lots be. Of People. One of those stories that if it were televised, it possibly would make a better programme than a book. Not often the case, but this may that may be the case with yeah. this story. Yeah. So really what we want to do is uh, is, is grab hold of uh, Jonathan Friedland, uh, pseudonym Sam Bourne, uh, drag him off to an island for a year and say, look, the, you've, you've got a fantastic plot. Mm. Do something with your characters, you know, for heaven's sake, make them, uh, you know, he, he says it, it says on the back here that uh, James Zenner is brilliant and troubled. You know, you get the trouble, but you don't get the brilliant. I, I don't understand no. why he's brilliant. No. So, you know, I want to take him, let, let's go and strand him on that island in the middle of the Thames and say, right, <laughs> sit here. I'll bring you some uh, some pasties every day and write and write and write and, you know, do do something. Let's, let's ignore the phone to your publisher. Uh, who, are, who are going to want to sell more? But I mean, but that's not the way publishing works, is it, Jill? No, no. But I think it's it's a good it's a good story. It's got a lot to it, but not something if you're wanting depth. If you're wanting something in depth about that period, then I think you know, go back to Robert Harris. I think. Okay, so warm up with Sam Bourne and then move yeah. on to uh, yeah. on to Robert Harris. Yeah. Okay, right. So we're going to move on to uh, the uh, the question we ask every week. Are you going to recommend this book to our reading room listeners? Not totally, but if you're looking for a holiday read for the plane. It'll while your hours away nicely. I like the way we started out this section by just saying we want a yes or no answer, and both of us have got. No, we're good. <laughs> we like fences. Fences are good. Exactly, exactly. I <laughs> mean, somebody's put a lot of their their life and work into a book, and I I think it's there's always something there, and it's there for someone, but it's not necessarily for sitting down with a long in-depth read they have now for me it's a yes because while I was doing some research uh, I came across a far right website that I'm not going to give the time of day to by giving their details or quoting anything but they weren't too keen so for that I'm going to say if it's if it's you know ticking those people off then it's doing something right and next month we're going to be reading The Woman Who Went to Bed for a Year. Now this was one of your recommendations uh, for 2012, wasn't it, Jill? Very much looking forward to reading this. Sue Townsend, I think, is a brilliant writer. Okay, well you're really looking forward to it. Now I, I picked this, uh, you know, the Sam Bourne book probably because it's a bit boisey. You know, we try to get a bit of balance in the, in the program between, certainly between you and I. Um, so actually, I'm looking forward to this. Now I've not really read any Sue Townsend really. I think I've read, read Adrian Mole. I've <laughs> I watched the TV series because it did have Judy Walters in, I think, didn't it? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I really enjoyed that. Um, but I, I was a bit too young to be reading that kind of thing then. I think my brother had it. I might have sneaked a few pages. And uh, talk about Pandora. <laughs> anyway. Yes. anyway, so, uh, yeah, so I'm going to, I'm approaching this with um, intrigue and suspicion. 
Well, we'll see what happens next month, Paul. Hello, this is Tracy Borman. You're listening to The Reading Room on Siren FM. The Reading Room's 101 books to read before you die. Hello, my name is Luke Wright, and the book I would recommend is A Handful of Dust by Evelyn Waugh. It was a difficult choice. It had to be a Evelyn Waugh book of some sort. Uh, I think Handful of Dust is his masterpiece. It's funny, it's tragic, it's terrifying in places, and uh, it still is as sharp a satire on society and the way that we treat each other today as it was when he wrote it in the 1930s. Oh, thanks to Luke Wright. A novelist and Britain's second best short story writer, John McGregor, came to Lincoln recently to perform some short stories from his new book, This Isn't the Sort of Thing That Happens to Someone Like You. Kathleen Drury spoke to John before the event and started by asking about this collection of stories. It's a collection of 30 different stories which are all set in Lincolnshire and Cambridgeshire in the Fens, really, and they're just about odd little things happening to people at unexpected moments in their lives and, I guess, about how people deal with them. And is the location an important part of the book? A key moment for me in putting together the collection of stories was realising that I was setting a lot of them in in rural areas and realising that a lot of the ideas were being inspired by uh, time I was spending in Lincolnshire and and realising that I could pull the whole thing together by setting it in specific locations across across the Fenlands. I do quite a lot of cycling and I live in Nottingham so a lot of my cycling is out into Lincolnshire and when I was growing up I I grew up in South Norfolk and did a lot of cycling in South Norfolk and and into Cambridgeshire so the Fenland landscape is, is quite familiar to me and I guess just what you know there were lots of times I was out on my bike and would see odd things happening or, or you know just would catch sight of some interesting juxtaposition of, of things going on and, and it just yeah it gave me lots of ideas for the stories. You say it's 30 short stories um, within the book are they linked in any way? They're not linked in the sense of having the same characters but they do hopefully add up to a kind of composite portrait of, of the place of Lincolnshire and, and, and the kind of image that I wanted the reader to have as they went through the book was was the kind of image that I've had when I've been out on the road in Lincolnshire. And because you can see for so far, you can see different people's lives at the same time. You can see like a, a, a farmhouse five miles one way and a, someone on a tractor five miles the other way and somebody fishing and all these different things going on at the same time. And I wanted the reader to get this sense of these different stories happening in the same place at the same time. So they're linked in that sense. And do ideas come to you naturally or do you have to spend a lot of time thinking about what it is that you're going to write? A story usually starts with an image or or a kind of line of dialogue or a pair of characters and it usually just kind of grows from there. I don't sit down with a blank sheet of paper and, and kind of wait for an idea to, to come. There's usually some, some kind of seed of something that, that has been kind of knocking around for a while. But then it takes a lot of work to kind of try and figure out where to where to take that and you know how to how to give the reader the same emotional response that I was having to that image or, or, or moment. Were there any of these short pieces that you thought might be worth lengthening and making into a separate book on their own? No. No. And that's what I love about short stories is is the way that you can you can absolutely stop when you're done. You know, whereas with a novel, you're always trying to fit some kind of predetermined structure and, and length. With a short story, you can just stop when you need to. And so there's, there's stories in this book that are, are one or two sentences long. And, and there's a story that's 10,000 words long and could have been 
uh, twice as long again, but it just felt like I'd done what I needed needed to do with that story. So have you always wanted to be a writer? Is it something that you've always had a, a dream to do? I don't remember as a child wanting to be a writer. I can remember reading voraciously, but I don't remember you know, having kind of one revelatory moment when I decided I was going to be a writer. I think it was only really when I was at university that I... I started off wanting to be a filmmaker or a photographer or, or, or something and eventually, you know, gradually kind of gave up each of those ideas and, and, and was left with writing um, and realised that all along it was the writing that I was interested in. And your first two novels were nominated for the Man Booker Prize. Has that put any additional pressure on you? Have you always got that in your mind that you feel perhaps this one has to be better than those? Um, has it, how has that affected you? When I started writing my second book, it did affect me a bit, especially because my writing had always been very private and it wasn't something that I talked to people about, it wasn't something that people knew about particularly. And then by the, when, when I sat down to write the second book, I, you know, I'd had lots of reviews and I'd had some attention and I, I'd had people talking to me about, about the book and what it meant. And yeah, it did, it did kind of make me feel not so much kind of pressured to, to do something as good, but just self-conscious about what I was doing. But I think, in a way, that's probably the same for anybody when they come to write their second book. Your your kind of desk has become a less private space, inevitably. So I, yeah, I struggled with that when I started writing the second book, and I got my head around it eventually. And and yeah, I think now it doesn't really it doesn't really bother me. I'm really excited that I'm able to make a living from writing, and I'm really excited that people buy the books and read them. And my main ambition is to just do the most interesting writing that I can do. Success for me is is narrowing that gap between the original idea and the finished piece of work. On your website, it says that you're inspired by the lyrics of Pulp. What is it that inspires you and what is your favourite Pulp song? The thing with Pulp and Jarvis Cocker's lyrics is that it was some of the first writing I had heard or read which felt like it was taking place in a familiar landscape. They say all that stuff about, you know cheap cigarettes and park benches and crumbling concrete bus shelters and you know the net curtains and all that kind of stuff it just it just felt familiar and and there was something very poetic you know poetic with a with a small p about the way Jarvis Cocker wrote those lyrics and the way that they were very narrative driven and so they yeah they were just quite inspiring to me when I started writing my first stories it felt like it was okay to write about the world that you know my favourite pop song probably is still Sheffield Sex City, partly because I lived in Sheffield for a while after university and partly just because that seems to encapsulate a lot of what Pulp did very well, <laughs> that kind of storytelling, narrative, humour, yeah, that kind of pretend epic thing. Have you ever been compared to another writer? And if so, have you taken that as a compliment? I mean, I usually try and ignore stuff like that. I mean, obviously I do read my own reviews. I don't think anybody is telling the truth if they say they don't. Sometimes it's interesting if I find myself being compared to a writer I haven't heard of, and then it's interesting to go and, and read their work and you know, figure out why that comparison was made. And, and occasionally there's a, car- a comparison gets made that I don't really respect or value or understand. But, you know, that's it's just a, it's different people's opinions. I think it's very dangerous to compare writers to other writers anyway, because everybody has their own voice. Do you think that any comments that have been made towards your writing have changed the way you've written your next book, for example? Sometimes. Certainly if there have been negative comments and 
I've recognised some truth in those negative comments, then I've I've tried really hard to kind of take that on board. And I think especially with, with my first book was published, there were lots of very generous reviews. And then there were a few reviews that were a lot less generous and, you know, that said the parts of that book were over-descriptive and overwritten. And, you know, I, I recognised that quite quickly and, and was aware that that was a kind of very much a, a first novel where you're trying very hard to, to impress the reader. And so when I came to the second novel, I was really conscious of kind of reining back a bit and, you know, tamping down on, 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 on the kind of urge to constantly describe every single little detail and just let the reader do some more work for themselves. So what are your plans for your next book or your next project? I can't tell you. You can't tell me anything, <laughs> no, but, you, you, anything. but you, are, you have got something in mind? Yeah, yeah, I have. I've got ideas for the next two novels. I'm currently trying to work out how to make them work and which one to do first, but yeah, they're, they're in progress. So you've got plans for at least two more novels. Do you think that you will always be a writer? I hope so, yeah, as long as people carry on paying for books um, <laughs> and, and, yeah, buying enough of them. Um, and I think, to be honest, you know, it, it's got to the point where even if it doesn't carry on working out financially and I have to get a proper job, I, I still think we'll always have that motivation to write something better than the last thing. Is that what you aim for? You aim to beat your last book? Yeah, yeah. It sounds pretty, I don't know, childish, but because every time you feel as, as if you've fallen slightly short of what you were trying to do, and so every time it's trying to correct those mistakes and, and, and fix those problems, do it better. And do you have any advice for anyone that is wanting to be a writer? Yeah, read more. I speak to a lot of people who are just starting out writing and I sometimes get the impression that they're not reading as much as they could be. And the best way of learning how to write is just by reading as, as widely and as deeply as you can. You know, if you, if you read one book by a writer that you didn't know before and you enjoy it, then, then go out and read their other books. And then if you find out who that writer's influences are, then go and read those people and figure out what they're doing that is working for you what they're doing you know with the sentences and the paragraphs and and the use of voice and these perspective and, and all these things yeah just read great advice from john mcgregor there speaking to our very own kathleen drury and this isn't the sort of thing that happens to someone like you is available now published by bloomsbury and of course you can follow the links from readingroom.podbean.com now it's time for some poetry from elaine kazimierchuk city break blues with apologies to W.H. Jordan. Wipe Paris off the map. Erase the airport Charles de Gaulle. Blow up the garden or Tear up your tickets, silver play. No need to tender taxi fares. The restaurants can all serve crap. Hotels can go to hell, and while you're at it, shutter up the shops. Clear pavement cafes, clean away. Stack up the tables and the chairs. Ignore the autumn colours of the leaves of city streets lit by the golden autumn sun. Paint over the Picassos, Monets and Matisses. Everyone. Silence the buskers, the accordion players, lazy midnight jazz, the blues in slightly melancholy bars. Don't think of walking arm in arm. Forget the charm, the conventional romance of, well, the moon, the stars. Allow the Louvre and all its objets d'art to fall into decay and desolately turn to dust. Neglect the Eiffel Tower until it is reduced to a rejected heap of rust. Silt up the Seine and flood the metro with a deluge of unpremeditated mud. For right now, none of this, to me, seems any good. 
thanks for listening to The Reading Room. On our next programme, we talk to poet and author John Osborne, and we have a short story from Nikki Valentine, plus a very special announcement about The Reading Room Live. See you then. Thank you.